Chapter Two of the Man in Lower Ten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Man in Lower Ten by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Two: A Torn Telegram. I lunched alone at the Gilmore House and went back to the city at once. The sun had lifted the mists, and a fresh summer wind had cleared away the smoke pall. The boulevard was full of cars flying countryward for the Saturday half holiday. Toward golf and tennis, green fields and babbling girls, I gritted my teeth and thought of McKnight at Richmond, visiting the lady with the geographical name, and then, for the first time, I associated John Gilmore's granddaughter with the West that McKnight had irritably flung at me. I still carried my traveling bag, for McKnight's vision at the window of the empty house had not been without effect. I did not transfer the notes to my pocket, and if I had. It would not have altered the situation later. Only the other day, McKnight put this very thing up to me. I warned you, he reminded me. I told you there were queer things coming, and to be on your guard, you ought to have taken your revolver. It would have been of exactly as much use as a bucket of snow in Africa. I retorted, if I had never closed my eyes, or if I had kept my finger on the trigger of a six-shooter, which is novelesque for revolver. The result would have been the same, and the next time you want a little excitement with every variety of thrill thrown in, I can put you by way of it. You begin by getting the wrong berth in a Pullman car and end. Oh, I know how it ends. He finished shortly. Don't you suppose the whole thing's written on my spinal marrow? But I am wandering again. That is the difficulty with the unprofessional storyteller. He yaws back and forth and can't keep in the wind. He drops his characters overboard when he hasn't any further use for them and drowns them. He forgets the coffee pot and the frying pan and all the other small essentials. And if he carries a love affair, he mutters a fervent "I'll be praised" when he lands them, drenched with adventures, at the matrimonial dock at the end of the final chapter. I put in a thoroughly unsatisfactory afternoon. Time dragged eternally. I dropped in at a summer vaudeville and bought some ties at a haberdasher's. I was bored but unexpectant. I had no premonition of what was to come. Nothing unusual had ever happened to me. Friends of mine had sometimes sailed the high seas of adventure or skirted the coasts of chance, but all of the shipwrecks had occurred after a woman passenger had been taken on. Ergo, I had always said no women. I repeated it to myself that evening almost savagely, when I found my thoughts straying back to the picture of John Gilmore's granddaughter. I even argued as I ate my solitary dinner at a downtown restaurant. Haven't you troubles enough? I reflected, without looking for more. Hasn't bad news gone lame with a matinee race booked for the next week? Otherwise, aren't you comfortable? Isn't your house in order? Do you want to sell a pony in order to have the library done over in mission or the drawing room in gold? Do you want somebody to count the empty cigarette boxes lying around every morning? Lay it to the long idle afternoon, to the new environment, to anything you like. But I began to think that perhaps I did. I was confoundedly lonely. For the first time in my life, its even course began to waver. The needle registered warning marks on the matrimonial seismograph, lines vague enough, but lines. My alligator bag lay at my feet, still locked. While I waited for my coffee, I leaned back and surveyed the people incuriously. There were the usual couples intent on each other. My new state of mind made me regard them with tolerance. But at the next table, where a man and woman dined together, 
a different atmosphere prevailed. My attention was first caught by the woman's face. She had been speaking earnestly across the table, her profile turned to me. I had noticed casually her earnest manner, her somber clothes, and the great mass of odd, bronze-colored hair on her neck. But suddenly she glanced toward me, and the utter hopelessness, almost tragedy, of her expression struck me with a shock. She half-closed her eyes and drew a long breath, and then she turned again to the man across the table. Neither one was eating. He sat low in his chair, his chin on his chest, ugly folds of thick flesh protruding over his collar. He was probably fifty, bald, grotesque, sullen, and yet not without a suggestion of power. But he had been drinking. As I looked, he raised an unsteady hand and summoned a waiter with a wine-list. The young woman bent across the table and spoke again quickly. She had unconsciously raised her voice. Not beautiful. In her earnestness and stress, she rather interested me. I had an idle inclination to advise the waiter to remove the bottled temptation from the table. I wonder what would have happened if I had. Suppose Harrington had not been intoxicated when he entered the Pullman car Ontario that night. For they were about to make a journey, I gathered, and the young woman wished to go alone. I drank three cups of coffee, which accounted for my wakefulness later, and shamelessly watched the tableau before me. The woman's protest evidently went for nothing. Across the table the man grunted monosyllabic replies, and grew more and more lowering and sullen. Once, during a brief unexpected pianissimo in the music, her voice came to me sharply. "'If I could only see him in time,' she was saying. "'Oh, it's terrible!' In spite of my interest, I would have forgotten the whole incident at once, erased it from my mind as one does the inessentials and clutterings of memory, had I not met them again, later that evening, in the Pennsylvania station. The situation between them had not visibly altered. The same dogged determination showed in the man's face. But the young woman, daughter or wife, I wondered, had drawn down her veil, and I could only suspect what white misery lay beneath. I bought my berth after waiting in a line of some eight or ten people. When, step by step, I had almost reached the window, a tall woman whom I had not noticed before spoke to me from my elbow. She had a ticket and money in her hand. "'Will you try to get me a lower when you buy yours?' she asked. "'I have travelled for three nights in uppers.' I consented, of course. Beyond that I hardly noticed the woman. I had a vague impression of height and a certain amount of stateliness. But the crowd was pushing behind me, and someone was standing on my foot. I got two lowers easily, and, turning with change and burrs, held out the tickets. "'Which will you have?' I asked. "'Lower eleven, or lower ten? "'It makes no difference,' she said. "'Thank you very much, indeed.' At random I gave her lower eleven, and called a porter to help her with her luggage. I followed them leisurely to the train-shed, and ten minutes more saw us under way. I looked into my car, but it presented the peculiarly unattractive appearance common to sleepers. The burrs were made up, the center aisle was a path between walls of dingy, breeze-repelling curtains, while the two seats at each end of the car were piled high with suitcases and umbrellas. The perspiring porter was trying to be six places at once. Somebody had said that Pullman porters are black so they won't show the dirt, but they certainly show the heat. 9.15 was an outrageous hour to go to bed, especially since I sleep little or not at all on the train. 
so I made my way to the smoker and passed the time until nearly eleven with cigarettes and a magazine. The car was very close, it was a warm night, and before turning in I stood a short time in the vestibule. The train had been stopping at frequent intervals, and, finding the brakeman there, I asked the trouble. It seemed that there was a hot-box on the next car, and that not only were we late, but we were delaying the second section just behind. I was beginning to feel pleasantly drowsy, and the air was growing cooler as we got into the mountains. I said good-night to the brakeman, and went back to my berth. To my surprise, Lower Ten was already occupied. A suitcase projected from beneath, and a pair of shoes stood on the floor, and from behind the curtains came the heavy, unmistakable breathing of deep sleep. I hunted out the porter, and together we investigated. "'Are you asleep, sir?' asked the porter, leaning over deferentially. No answer forthcoming, he opened the curtains and looked in. Yes, the intruder was asleep, very much asleep, and an overwhelming odor of whiskey proclaimed that he would probably remain asleep until morning. I was irritated. The car was full, and I was not disposed to take an upper in order to allow this drunken interloper to sleep comfortably in my berth. "'You'll have to get out of this,' I said, shaking him angrily. But he merely grunted and turned over. As he did so, I saw his features for the first time. It was the quarrelsome man of the restaurant. I was less disposed than ever to relinquish my claim, but the porter, after a little quiet investigation, offered a solution of the difficulty. "'There's no one in Lower Nine, he suggested, pulling open the curtains just across. "'It's likely Nine's his berth, and he's made a mistake owing to his condition. "'You'd better take Nine, sir.' I did, with a firm resolution that if Nine's rightful owner turned up later, I should be just as unwakeable as the man opposite. I undressed leisurely, making sure of the safety of the forged notes, and placing my grip, as before, between myself and the window. Being a man of systematic habits, I arranged my clothes carefully, putting my shoes out for the porter to polish, and stowing my collar and scarf in the little hammock swung for the purpose. At last, with my pillows so arranged that I could see out comfortably, and with the unhygienic-looking blanket turned back, I have always a distrust of these much-used affairs, I prepared to wait gradually for sleep. But sleep did not visit me. The train came to frequent grating stops, and I surmised the hot-box again. I am not a nervous man, but there was something chilling in the thought of the second section pounding along behind us. Once, as I was dozing, our locomotive whistled a shrill warning. "'You keep back where you belong,' it screamed to my drowsy ears, and from somewhere behind came a chastened, "'All right, I will.' I grew more and more wide awake. At Crescent I got up on my elbow and blinked out at the station lights. Some passengers boarded the train there, and I heard a woman's low tones, a southern voice, rich and full, then quiet again. Every nerve was tense, Time passed, perhaps ten minutes, possibly half an hour. Then, without the slightest warning, as the train rounded a curve, a heavy body was thrown into my berth. The incident, trivial as it seemed, was startling in its suddenness, for although my ears were painfully strained and awake, I had heard no step outside. The next instant the curtain hung limp again, still without a sound. My disturber had slipped away into the gloom and darkness. In a frenzy of wakefulness I sat up, drew on a pair of slippers, and fumbled for my bathrobe. From a berth across, probably lower ten, came that particularly aggravating snore which begins lightly, delicately, 
faintly soprano, goes down the scale a note with every breath, and after keeping the listener tense with expectation, ends with an explosion that tears the very air. I was more and more irritable. I sat on the edge of the berth and hoped the snorer would choke to death. He had considerable vitality, however. He withstood one shock after another and survived to start over again with new vigor. In desperation I found some cigarettes and one match, piled my blankets over my grip, and drawing the curtains together as though the berth were still occupied, I made my way to the vestibule of the car. I was not clad for dress parade. Is it because the male is so restricted to gloom in his everyday attire that he blossoms into gaudy colors in his pajamas and dressing gowns? It would take a Turk to feel at home before an audience in my red and yellow bathrobe, a Christmas remembrance from Mrs. Clopton, with slippers to match. So, naturally, when I saw a feminine figure on the platform, my first instinct was to dodge. The woman, however, was quicker than I. She gave me a startled glance, wheeled and disappeared, with a flash of two bronze-colored braids into the next car. Cigarette box in one hand, match in the other, I leaned against the uncertain frame of the door and gazed after her vanishing figure. The mountain air flapped my bathrobe around my bare ankles. My one batch burned to the end and went out, and still I stared, for I had seen on her expressive face a haunting look that was horror, nothing less. Heaven knows I am not psychological. Emotions have to be written large before I can read them. But a woman in trouble always appeals to me, and this woman was more than that. She was in deadly fear. If I had not been afraid of being ridiculous, I would have followed her. But I fancied that the apparition of a man in a red and yellow bathrobe, with an unkept thatch of hair, walking up to her and assuring her that he would protect her would probably put her into hysterics. I had done that once before, when burglars had tried to break into the house, and had startled the parlor-maid into bed for a week. So I tried to assure myself that I had imagined the lady's distress, or caused it, perhaps, and to dismiss her from my mind. Perhaps she was merely anxious about the unpleasant gentleman of the restaurant. I thought smugly that I could have told her all about him, that he was sleeping the sleep of the just and the intoxicated, in a berth that ought, by all that was fair and right, to have been mine, and that if I were tied to a man who snored like that, that I should have him anesthetized, and his soft palate put where it would never again flap like a loose sail in the wind. We passed Harrisburg as I stood there. It was starlight, and the great crests of the Alleghanies had given way to low hills. At intervals we passed smudges of grey-white, no doubt in daytime comfortable farms, which McKnight says is a good way of putting it, the farms being a lot more comfortable than the people on them. I was growing drowsy, the woman with the bronze hair and the horrified face was fading in retrospect. It was colder, too, and I turned with a shiver to go in. As I did so, a bit of paper fluttered into the air and settled on my sleeve, like a butterfly on a gorgeous red and yellow blossom. I picked it up curiously and glanced at it. It was part of a telegram that had been torn into bits. There were only parts of four words on the scrap, but it left me puzzled and thoughtful. It read, Lower ten, car seven. Lower ten, car seven was my berth, the one I had bought and found preempted. End of chapter two.